Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. Welcome to July's edition of Recharge, the podcast by Battery Materials Review. In a sec, we'll have a recap of all the month's key news with Cormac O'Lara, MD of Electrios Energy. But I'd just like to thank this issue's sponsors, ICC Sino. ICC Sino is a professional industry research and consulting company in China, which is specialized in the lithium battery market research and data analysis. Check out their services at iccsino.com. So moving on now, and I'm delighted once again to welcome Cormac O'Lara, MD of Electrios Energy. Lots going on this month, Cormac. Lots going on every month, really, isn't it? Where, <laughs> yeah. where to start? Yeah, it's not a quiet is. month or a quiet week or a quiet day. You know, you'd need a, a few hours of podcasting time to get through it all. That's true. Shall we start with China then and sort of the, the, the battery space in China? EV sales bouncing back in May and June. What do you think? A little bit of a slowdown. It's known as the lull season, right? So that's why we've seen kind of flat flatness in the battery and spot market anyway in battery metals, battery chemicals, so so speak. Traditionally, a little quiet this time of the month, uh, this time of the year, uh, summer months. uh, But uh, could be a big pickup towards the end of the year as we try and uh, get the uh, sales numbers up. Yeah, so I mean, I guess Q4 is uh, historically very, very strong for for Chinese EV sales. As you say, Northern Hemisphere summer, generally a little bit of a quiet time, but nevertheless, still bouncing back sequentially from the April weakness in May and, and into June. So that's pretty positive. One sort of interesting sort of takeaway is that BYD, absolutely cleaning up the opposition in terms of market share in the Chinese market. Yes, uh, it's been um, a monster quarter for uh, BYD. Again, a lot of this has got to do with the lockdowns, I believe, and access to components, uh, which is, is slightly easier in the south of the country. Yeah. And you know, exports have been up as well. They're booming in all sectors, in energy storage as well. Uh, yeah. Fair amount sort of going on elsewhere in the world. I guess one of the sort of really interesting stories, though, from China, certainly from from my point of view, is this change to the rules in terms of the energy stationary storage space to allow battery operators to actually trade in power. That's quite a substantial step change, isn't it? Yeah, I think it was inevitable that it was going to happen. But it came a little sooner than we thought. Now, Chinese market's going to be a lot more competitive and we'll really put the coal fire plants and gas and others you know up against it just to show are the prices real are they subsidized you know there's a lot playing on especially in the coal fire fired plants you know i guess from the point of view of battery demand um that's going to be very very positive for for stationary storage because you have the opportunity to make those stationary storage batteries that much more profitable if you're able to to trade around power. Yeah, yeah. A lot more markets will be open. Arbitrage and shifting and frequency regulation, you know, a lot more. Every year, there's a, a lot more applications that are open to and available and, and price competitive to energy storage systems. Chinese, uh, not just looking at lithium, though, they 
some vanadium flows going online in China in the last 12 months. Uh, some sodium ion installations will be going online. So they, they're attacking it uh, on various fronts. But the government did mandate recently that all energy storage batteries will be LFP from now on. Right. No more NMC, yeah. Okay, well, I, I, I suppose that makes a lot of sense given the, the sort of lower cost of, of those batteries and the need for, for ternary really in the electric vehicle market. Seems seems crazy to have a an overspect sort of ternary battery in your, um, in your energy storage uh, applications. Well, I think safety was a big con- uh, issue as well after the incident in Beijing. They yeah. Uh, built up areas. Yeah, yeah, but, you know, NMC still has... It's uses uh, when you're confined by space and in Chinese yeah. cities, there's not a lot of space. Interesting that you mention VRFBs. A number of reports out over the last four to six weeks highlighting increasing demand for vanadium. And indeed, a, a sort of report that was commissioned by Vanitech, the um, vanadium Industry Trade Association has got uh, very positive expectations. It thinks that vanadium demand will double by 2031 off the back of the the rollout of VRFBs. And then, you know, a report coming out, I think, just last week in China, as you say, flagging that a lot of VRFB is going on in 2022. So could this be the point of inflection that we've been waiting for for VRFBs and, and long duration battery chemistries? I think the VRFB has come a long way. Uh, there's some modular solutions now, right? That you just mm-hmm. truck in, truck out, the standalone solutions. You have the, the leasing of battery uh, chemicals. So quite flexible, although it doesn't beat a lithium ion on price currently. But as in the market, you know, it's coming off a low base. So it's going to be doubling, tripling over the next couple of years. But um, that's what we got to see to uh, lower the pricing. But uh, UK, I believe, is also. Um, I just read an announcement this week about a large vanadium flow battery uh, system. I think it was um, commissioned with the, with the Oxford. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And also, I mean, the US has been quite active, particularly California, in um, pushing long duration systems. So there certainly is interest in the Western world, but it looks like it's in China where the bulk of big systems are being applied at the moment, which is great because obviously we were waiting for that sort of commercial application moment that was going to push VRFBs into the mainstream. Yeah, it's companies with a lot of capital testing the market in China. You know, your hydrogen's come a long way over there as well, right? And it's just, it's not limited commercially as it would be in the West more or less. You know, there's companies have capital, they have addressable markets. You know, you got many various tiered cities, which the lowest tier might be 10 million occupants uh, are citizens. And you got to, that's a pretty big city still to introduce uh, flow batteries to and test out your system and how to integrate it and how to really you know, optimize it to provide solutions to the network. So they got a lot better systems uh, and opportunities to test these systems out because they're still quite small, right, compared to lithium ion, I mean, the installations. So, so uh, anything else on, on China that we should particularly flag for this month? Well, there's a lot going on. On the technology side, CATL are, are pushing and the M3P, which is a variant of a lithium ion phosphate. They haven't really said what's in, in, in the cathode. It, it's, uh, so it's, a var- it's some sort of lithium manganese iron phosphate, probably combined with ternary cathode material. 
So NMC right. Mixer LFMP okay. is the best guess. So that would be potentially the first major commercial application of LFMP or LMFP. Anyway, lithium, manganese, iron, phosphate batteries in a big way. It was a couple of companies working at, you know, Esfold, Goshen. Not sure who's going to be first to market. LFMP is still not produced in, in mass. I mean, the cathode material, I, still, uh, I believe they're still figuring out how to, um, it's slightly different processing at the um, chemical engineering side uh, compared to LFP. Uh, and, and, you know, you got to uh, also optimize particle size, uh, conductivity, a, a whole load of work needs to go into it to do it on a commercial scale. You know, it's been done on a lab scale, all right. And does that require high purity manganese similar to, to ternary batteries or will lower purity material work in those sort of batteries or is that still up in the air? It's still up in the air on what the manganese raw material, from what I know, what the actual, uh, it's just most likely not going to be manganese sulfate. So what the actual raw material going in is, uh, there's a number of options and I'm not sure which one. Companies are playing the cards close to the chest on this one. Uh, yeah. Very little information out of them about how they plan to introduce LFMP, but it looks like it's going to be in conjunction with uh, ternary materials to get the benefit of the LFP while having similar voltage to the NMC. So kind of mixed pack. And then uh, uh, CATL also announced they, they'll have the sodium mine ready for 2023. I thought they said last year it would be 2022, but... Um, well there's quite a lot of that goes on in battery land isn't there i like it i like (laughs) it i mean it's like solid states i mean we've been waiting for solid state for for the last five or six years as as i can make out so (laughs) yeah yeah well you can always say yeah that's the easiest one to answer 10 years 10 years and and nobody's going to come back to you and say 10 years ago you told me yeah 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 okay i like to move slightly further west now and talk a little bit about India. Now, we don't really talk about India that much with regards to sort of electric vehicles and and ESS, but quite a rapidly growing market off a low base. And there was a a really interesting study out by the consultant Arthur D. Little last month, which flagged that by 2030, 10% of electric vehicles sold in the world will be sold in India. But only 5% of those will be four-wheeled cars. The rest of them will be two- and three-wheelers. And I noticed that this month, the Indian government is planning to finalize a national battery swapping policy, which I think is very, very interesting, given the breakdown of the EV industry in India, that it is these two- and three-wheelers. And, and you know, you can effectively build a swapping policy in, which would potentially lower your need to build charging infrastructure very, very substantially. Given that, that swapping is, has been quite successful in some applications in China, what do you think about that? Well, I was just reading an article during the week to go to a tier mobility in uh, Berlin. They do um, scooters. They've introduced the swapping uh, program this year, and it's been hugely successful instead of so it's cut down on the amount of charging they have to do uh, they used to take the scooters back into the warehousing warehouses and, uh, and charge them but they so they needed large warehousing and they've done away with huge capital overheads by uh, entering into uh, swapping i'm not sure how much of their fleet is it but you know so usually the you need to send out diesel vans to go and pick up the scooters load them up you know it's it's a lot of work and um, with the swapping it's um 
a lot easier and lowers the, the, the carbon footprint drastically. Swapping models being, if you look at the Taiwanese company Gogoro in Taiwan, it's been a hugely successful, the swapping banks. And I, I think ideally suitable for the Indian economy. Indian uh, electric grid is not, not known for being very stable. Uh, with, it. <laughs> I think a lot of home charging would be a big issue. Uh, and um, swapping banks is I- ideal um, yeah. and a really good solution for two-wheelers. There's a few companies that disagree in the electric two-wheeler world, but it really depends on the region. It's not one solution all for all. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think it's a, it's a brilliant solution because it, it, re- it requires so much less charging infrastructure. You don't have to put a charger on every street corner and you don't have to put high voltage charges in street corners, which is a, a huge investment for a country the size of India, potentially, you know, for a country the size of, of the US or China. And if you can bring in this battery swapping, it's, it's very substantially lowering the need for that infrastructure. And I think the other thing that, that, that people should be aware of is smaller electric vehicles use much smaller batteries. So for instance, the top selling e-scooter in India uses a three kilowatt hour battery, which has a sort of 120 kilometer range. Now you could sell 30 scooters for every electric vehicle if you're using a a standard 60 to 90 uh, kilowatt hour battery. So, you know, it really is a very, very substantial positive move if we can use swapping effectively in India. And uh, we catalyze demand for two and three wheeler electric vehicles rather than necessarily four wheelers. Yeah, it's two different things. Uh, did you read the, um, the CEO of Nissan's Rumer, uh, new strategy he announced during the week about how he views the automotive and uh, electric vehicles in particular? It's an experience. We're selling an experience. It's no longer about uh, mobility moving from A to B so that when they go forward, the, the Nissan EVs will be. The minute you sit in it, it's an experience. And uh, Well, I, I think that works in the luxury market, but in the mass market, uh, eventually, uh, effectively, people are still looking for getting from A to B. I'd be quite interested to see how Nissan does going forward because, you know, at the end of the day, for mass market sales, it still comes down to price. And, and that's a, a sort of core consideration the, in this context. Kia is running away with the market at the moment. Uh, mm. Here in Ireland, I'm tripping over Kias, uh, electric Kias on the road. The beautiful looking car, Hyundai Kia, uh, Hyundai and Kia. Just to look at them is experience alone. So, yeah, it's two different markets. Uh, you don't electric even have to drive them. I, I, I parked, well, parked next to a few of them, and like this is a nice car, you know. Uh, parking an old, an old diesel next to them, but uh, getting a little bit of exhaust fumes on them. Uh, but they, um, yeah, the, it's two, two different markets, but the, you know, the um, swapping would be an ease experience, right? right. Convenience, mm. ease. The Gogoro model in um, Taiwan is uh, basically teaming up the uh, swapping banks with uh, 7-Elevens uh, and convenience stores. And of course, I mean, you know, in four-wheelers, we've seen Neo be very successful in battery swapping in China. A number of uh, Chinese OEMs now moving into the swapping market. So I think it'd be very interesting going forward and uh, i think that looks like a you know really exciting solution for india that's likely to capitalize electric vehicle demand all these huge moves going on in the moment in the gigafactory world also i expect a number of gigafactories to be there in the next five to ten years near to five because uh, the government made a you know significant amount of funding available and 
the funding has certain criteria that have to be satisfied in order to, to get the funding over a five-year period. So very aggressive moves to build gigafactories in India at the moment. Yeah. Okay. Talking about aggressive moves, the EU plans to abolish ICE vehicles by 2035. Won't say that the procession of that strategy was without its, excuse the horrific pun, speed bumps, but it looks like it's on course to take place now. How are they going to source the raw materials to do that? That, that would be my first question. Uh, easy. You just need aluminum frame bicycles. Well, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's one way, one way of looking at it. But uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's great that we're seeing very strong government support for the space. But, you know, when you roll back government expectations and government targets and OEM targets, you do sort of sit there and scratch your head and go, actually, where is all this lithium going to come from? Where is all this graphite going to come from? You do look at the what governments are asking for and say, well, you're setting yourself up for failure here. It's interesting. Uh, so it's 100% CO2 or zero CO2 emissions. So that, there's no room for uh, hybrids in that, in that scenario also? Well, that's a really interesting question because you've got to think that hybrids are an important stepping stone going forward, given that they're much smaller batteries. And, and yes, they are reducing CO2, but obviously not eliminating it totally. So, yeah, I mean, I think this is a, a political strategy rather than perhaps a practical strategy for the future. But very interesting in the context of the fact that the European Chemicals Agency is looking to classify lithium chemicals as dangerous, which could completely derail the development of a lithium manufacturing industry in in the EU, which of course is is absolutely core to developing uh, an EU battery supply chain. So, you know, complete lack of joined up thinking from the European Union as as usual, really. Yeah, it's the uh, it was the tail wagging the dog kind of. Uh, they're they're going to legislate themselves out of the market. Well, I mean, they've already talked themselves miles behind anyone else. I mean, you know, the EU was the first sort of major block to start talking about electric vehicles after China, but they've already allowed the North Americans to go past them in terms of of matching matching words with actions. So. There's unfortunately too much hot air and red tape in the EU and, and not enough action. It's a real risk, I think, going forward for the for the EV industry. Yeah, I just wonder how, how it'll play out. The classifying as a reproductive toxic uh, toxin is um, who's apparently handling this stuff anyway. You know, well, it's the carbonate lithium hydroxide. It's dangerous to human health, I believe, is how they're going to classify it. And that means that you have to basically substantially rework your processing activities. And I mean, nobody's really actively involved in the EU, apart from Albemarle, who have a plant in Germany. And um, I've seen speculation that that if these rules went through, Albemarle would have to close that plant. Now, that's not really the sort of message that you want to be sending when you're talking about abolishing ICE vehicles by 2035 and only selling EVs. Oh, but by the way, you can't produce lithium in Europe. That's not really the sort of message that you want to be sending, is it? It just shows you maybe you build or you've plans to build a uh, converter processing facility in the next five years, but you don't know if you can be legislated out of it again in five years' time. This issue of sort of red tape is very, very relevant in the industry. I mean, 
Albemarle was out this month complaining or suggesting to the US government that it might want to look at, you know, the red tape in the planning process for for not just processing, but also the raw materials end of the business. And, you know, if I look at the the number of projects which are in planning hell over the last four or five years, I mean, there's Piedmont project in, in the US that looks like it's going to be delayed. There's obviously Rio's Serbian project. There's Savannah's Portuguese project and Infinity's Spanish project. You are sort of sitting there going, well, you're not making this easy. You talk about setting up a, a genuine EV supply chain, but, but you're not making it easy to actually build an upstream supply chain. And of course, the winners in all of this are countries like Canada and Australia and Brazil, who've got very viable mining industries and viable mining legislation. And I think there's going to be very substantial differentiation in terms of the winners and losers going forward. They are very um, mining-friendly countries with that also have the raw materials. You know, Australia, it's pretty easy, pretty straightforward to going from project, as long as you got the funding, to fully running a mining facility in two to three years. On top of that, both Australia and Canada, also Brazil, you know, they've got pretty stringent environmental regulations. So it's not like people are just sticking up, polluting stuff willy-nilly. I don't see why the US and Europe can't potentially take a, you know, a leaf out of Australia and Canada's and just say, look, is there any way to streamline these, this planning? Because it's a big issue if it's taking 10 years to permit a, a, a project in the EU and US, and it's only taking three or four years to permit a project in, in Canada, Australia, or potentially less. And, uh, you know, if you want to set up your own supply chain, it's going to be very difficult because nobody's going to want to invest in your region. Yeah, not in my backyard, as they say. And, and in Western <laughs> Australia, it's not in anyone's backyard. There's no one living out there. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's vast open spaces uh, in Canada and uh, Australia, but uh, Europe's a bit more tight. Everybody wants EVs, but not my backyard. Yeah, so. yeah. So, so I guess what's what's the solution for that? And, and nobody's found it yet, but uh, hopefully there'll be less red tape. And then just to wind up, obviously the big news of June was the two deals for OEMs to provide capital for raw materials companies, Stellantis equity deal with Vulcan and Liontown's debt deal with, with Ford. And I think it's great from our point of view that, that the OEMs are starting to move on that, but we need them to move a lot faster. I mean, given the weakness in the equity market this year, funding is down in the battery raw material space, 50% year on year. And that's even factoring in the, the amount that was raised by Tianqi in the last couple of days. We need, if, 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 if the OEMs are you know, serious about electric vehicles, they still need to allocate raw materials and governments as well need to allocate financing to raw materials because it's going to be very, very difficult for certainly mid-tier developers and, and junior developers to access equity funding this year. Yeah, it looks like the, the faucet's going to be turned off, I think, for the foreseeable future. Um, yeah, so the OEMs look like they're making the right moves in the right direction. Stellantis and Vulcan, uh, I'm not sure what the timeline that is. Obviously, that's somewhat up in the air, dependent on the on the technology. But 
fingers crossed some of these DLE projects do come off as planned because frankly we need them we need the raw materials for, from these projects and if if they don't come off in the time frame that the companies are expecting it's going to leave a big big black hole in the, in the lithium market even bigger black hole in the lithium market like you said earlier how, how are we going to get the supply chain up in Europe it's through companies like Vulcan if the technology is successful low carbon footprint low industrial footprint I think that's something average European citizen can swallow I think the thing to remember about DLE is it's not a one-size-fits-all solution so just because DLE works in for instance a project in in Arkansas doesn't mean it's going to work in a project in in Europe because each lithium reservoir is different with a very different chemical makeup and it's going to respond differently to different types of of DLE technology. So I think just because one DLE project is successful doesn't mean all of them will be successful, but certainly it sort of takes a a fair amount of that financing risk off the table. There's still a, a lot of technical risk in there, but it does take some of the risk off the table if, you know, a couple of these DLE projects get away. There's many DLE projects, a lot of DLE tech. It depends, as you said, on the brine, what contaminants you have in there, that you have to really tailor your solutions. China is also going heavy in on uh, DLE solutions for the Qinghai salt flats. Uh, Yeah. You know, it's seen as the quickest way. Obviously, the the Qinghai salt flats uh, don't have as much solar exposure as uh, Chile, the salt flats. So the way to get lithium out of the brine, brines and sailors is quickly and uh, and low water footprint and, and others is with DLE, hopefully. That's a core consideration. I think those historically have been more of a potash asset than a, uh, than a lithium one. Yeah, that's so. the other thing. Yeah, yeah. afterthought. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's going, to be, it's going to be very interesting to see whether they can do it. And I would never bet against the Chinese in production of a commodity product We've had ample evidence that that when China Inc. gears up to to produce a commodity product, they they can do it, you know, very rapidly. Not necessarily cheaply, not necessarily in an environmentally friendly way, but they can do it very very rapidly. So I'd never bet against them in a commodity product. The question is, can they do it in a specialty chemical product that requires quite a high purity, or is the material that they produce going to have to be reworked? And I think this, you know, this comes back to the negative broker report on the sector that came out last month or the month before last. And, you know, the the question is, is there enough processing capacity? Because the processing capacity that's set up at the moment is to process the raw material that's being produced by potentially DLE or the pitolite hard rock. But if a large amount of the material that's produced from those processes is not battery grade, then that material is going to have to be reprocessed. And then there's not enough processing capacity to reprocess that material. So it's it's going to be very, very interesting going forward to see whether these assets can produce enough battery-grade material. I wouldn't be surprised if it needed to be upgraded. But I follow a lot of the Chinese um, industrial announcements regarding battery chemical projects. And... Very rarely do you see any announcements about uh, lithium processing plants in China. So you get a lot of cathode material plants, graphite plants, lithium mining, but nothing uh, on the conversion or processing. I think you're right, the capacity 
probably not be there, even if all the lithium comes online. Okay, I think we have rabbited on for long enough. So we'll call it a day there. And I'll say uh, thanks very much to Cormac for his time and uh, look forward to catching up with you next month. Cheers, Matt. Appreciate it. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. So that brings us to the end of our podcast for July. You can get more detail on any of the topics we've discussed in the latest issue of Battery Materials Review, which you can find at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. I'm Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge. Thanks for listening.